we all play a role in making a difference. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, how they want their community to be or why my community is not like this community. The one thing I know about any community that's functioning really well is that they have community residents that's involved and engaged. And they also have law enforcement working with them and not against them. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action, and my name is Sam Woods. My name is Benjamin Ringo. And I'm Kyle Heggie, and today we bring you our third and final episode. People said, Kyle, do four, do five, do... I said, we only are going to do three, because we have some great guests on, we got to have a conclusion, so you're going to listen to the final episode of our Police Community Relations series right now. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, you should go you can stop now just, and just go, go back and yeah. do that. But uh, just as a refresher, our first episode covered the theory of policing and highlighted the stressful and at times dangerous aspects of a police officer's job. Well, our second episode focused on systemic failures in police strategy here in Milwaukee. And we looked at that through the recent settlement agreement between the city and the ACLU concerning racial profiling. These two episodes have highlighted a broken relationship between the Milwaukee community and the police, founded in a lack of trust between the two parties to be working in each other's best interests. Knowing this lack of trust between the community and the police exists, we want to shift our focus both to third-party organizations in Milwaukee that act as liaisons between police and the community, as well as the DA's office. These third-party organizations are sometimes not covered as much by the news as they ought to be because they're really essential to keeping a functioning relationship between the police and the community going. So on this episode, we spoke with Bobby McQuay, who's a safety and community outreach specialist with the Near West Side Partners. We spoke with Katie Sanders, who's the director of Safe and Sound. And we also, as Sam mentioned, spoke with the district attorney, John Chisholm, and the assistant DA, Kaylin Ringersma, on their community prosecution units, which use these wonderful third-party organizations as a way to uh, fulfill the district attorney's mission. So first we're going to hear from Bobby McQuay. Uh, He, again, is the safety and community outreach specialist and talks a little bit about what the Near West Side Partners does in order to address challenges with crime and criminal justice in the community. Well, my name is Bobby McQuay, and I am the Community Safety and Outreach Specialist for the Near West Side Partners. It entails two things, outreach component, which means really talking, meeting with the people, the community residents, finding out some of their interests, concerns about the community, and ways that we could uh, maybe address it, or either find the resources to help address that situation that the community residents may problems that they may have. And the other is safety. Without safety, it's hard to be in a community. So we try to address things that kind of follow the broken window theory. You know, if a community is dirty, it's easier to do things that you wouldn't want happening in your community. Tell me about how you yourself got, like, involved in this type of work. (laughs) Okay, well, we had to go back about maybe 15, 16 years ago. A, A community resident, former business owner, landlord, and I've always helped people. And I, I decided that I would go to school for social work and continue what I, uh, uh, something that I was doing naturally. That got looped into community service, and I found myself going from nonprofit to nonprofit, really specializing and honing in what it is that I really like to do. Mm-hmm. And I really like to, I really like to see things through, make things happen. And some positions you could only accept the complaints 
in this position that I'm in now that I can address them and do something about them. And I think that's kind of where I was trying to get to all along. So from my perspective, New West Side Partners is an organization that is really embedded in the community and you're talking to community members on a pretty regular basis. Yes. Um, what are you hearing from community members, particularly around safety, around law enforcement? Uh, what is like a big theme that often comes up in your conversations with community members? From what I'm hearing from their perspective is that, hey, when I call the police, they don't show up. When in actuality, it's not that when they call the police, the police don't show up. It goes through a queue hmm. and it may hit the non-emergency. And police are so backed up dealing with things that's a higher priority that they're not having the opportunity to really get to the person right away. So sometimes what I hear is that I call the police and they didn't show up to the next day. That is a reality. It did happen, but I don't think enough community residents understand why that happened. You know, and that's a source of frustration. When a person decides to call 911, to them it's an emergency. And I don't think that that, you know, that that, you know, that that kind of translates well with community residents the way that the MPD currently operates. If I could say anything, I, you know, community residents are looking for a way to have better relationships with MPD to get a response to things as a non-emergency. And I know that MPD has, you know, they have some challenges with manpower right now. There's... In the media, I think there's a perspective of the Milwaukee community and its relationship with the police. Some of that perspective is that there's a lot of challenges that community members face with, uh, regarding police-community relations. What do you see, uh, either through from a Near West Side Partners perspective or just a Bobby perspective, yeah. as the biggest challenge facing the community in terms of keeping the community safe or uh, law enforcement community relations. And this is a Bobby's perspective from working within the community and being a part of the community, too. I, I live close by, and my daily life involves a lot of dealing with the very people that I serve. Um, it's people coming forward to say that enough's enough and working together to identify the bad apples in our community. That's an obstacle. Um, people, you know, normally call the police after something. So the police are kind of reactive, mm. you know, and if we want to get the police more proactive, we have to start identifying things before it blows up. And I really believe that one of the reasons that things kind of happen the way that it does is because it's been allowed to fester for a lot of years. Most of us have people in our family that are bad perpetrators that do things and we don't call them out to the carpet on it or identify them. And if you start multiplying that by all the other families, people are doing things and knowing that they can hide in our community and get away with it. And then when something erupts or something happens, then you have innocent people getting hurt. Now, that's a Bobby perspective. That's what I believe. That's what I see happening. Is there a challenge that you see um, sort of from the, the policing or the, the government side of things? Um, you know, police officers are state-sponsored entities throughout these com throughout communities. Um, is there a challenge that you see from, from their perspective? Is there some sort of systemic challenge that you see as well that is contributing towards perhaps an unsafe community? Or is it does it start in your mind at, with the individuals within the community? Well, the, the police could only do so much. We do have to take on the omens. But there is things that law enforcement can do better. Number one, response times. Mm. Even though it's a non-emergency when someone dials 911 and then reroute it to the non-emergency number and put on hold for 30, 45 minutes and sometimes longer, that's an issue. Mm -hmm. That's something that's probably small, 
but can glow up and erupt fast. So a, a, a response time in developing personal relationships is key. Hmm. And I think that, you know, MPD is work is moving in the direction to have better relations with community residents, but the response times to non-emergencies have to come, you know, it, ha- it has to come down. Do you, do you know of any, um, like a time in Milwaukee's history where response time was better, uh, maybe other cities or near West Side Partners, do, they, do you have a, uh, a piece of reform or something you're advocating for um, that the MPD changes so that response time can be better? Well, or... this is a city, a lot of people, a lot of things are happening. Uh, Milwaukee is kind of, it feels like it's a pressure cooker right now. Mm-hmm. We make the national news for a lot of things that you don't want to make the news for. We lead statistical categories in this country that you don't want to be associated with. With that being said, and not going into the specifics of what those categories are, we all have to do a better job. But there are certain things that law enforcement, you know, should be aware of and and try to really focus and hone in on those things. And I think that is the actual relationship with residents. Mm -hmm. Developing you know, trying to develop that trust. Now, you're not going to get everyone on board with that. Quite frankly, there's a lot of people that got resentment for the police for a lot of different reasons that probably don't make any sense. Or but the some, opposite, where they have resentment, rightfully so, right? Yeah, have resentment, and some have resentment, rightfully so. Yeah. But bottom line is, when things happen, somebody's calling the police. So developing a relationship with officers that you can that you can trust, you know, I think that's I think that's big. And that happens by uh, what I believe District 3 is doing is, you know, police officers coming to community meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, But residents have to have community meetings. So I I see it as a, you know, a double-edged sword where both parties have to come to the table and bring more and do more. Next, you'll hear from Katie Sanders, the executive director at Safe and Sound, another Milwaukee organization that brings police and community members together to unite residents, youth, law enforcement, and community resources to build safe and empowered neighborhoods. So I'm Katie Sanders. I'm the executive director here at Safe and Sound. Um, I've been with the organization for about five and a half years now and came to Safe and Sound um, after working with the organization as a resident and block um, watch captain. Mm. So I had personal experience with the programming before coming on board as a staff member. Could you give a breakdown of what is Safe and Sound and what is the organization's mission? Well, Safe and Sound's mission is to unite residents, youth, law enforcement, and community resources to build safe and empowered neighborhoods. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. So we were founded in 1998. Um, And at that time, we were founded as a um, response to an increase in violent crime in the city of Milwaukee. And several community leaders, including Senator Cole, came together and really did research on best practices and what makes a community safe and identified the strong need for residents and especially our young residents to work with law enforcement. So um, they created Safe and Sound with the, you know, on the premise that residents, youth and law enforcement really need to be working together in, in order to improve public safety. And our, our work today is very specific to the neighborhood level. So is the Safe and Sound model, is this a model that is really unique to the city of Milwaukee? Are you learning best practices maybe from other cities if it is across the nation? 
Uh, Safe and Sound is unique. There is not another organization like us in the country, which is very exciting, but also can be frustrating because we don't have peer groups to learn from. So we serve geographically five of seven Milwaukee police districts. And within each district, we have three key staff members. One is a community organizer who works directly with adult residents. We have a, a youth organizer that really works side by side with that community organizer who does the same thing, but really focuses specifically on young people and strategies that work with youth and, and really identifying young people with the communities that they live in and work in or play in and go to school in so that young people have a voice in their own communities and are able to enact change, um, really becoming the, the future leaders of this community. Uh, the third key staff member is uh, what we call a neighborhood safety coordinator, and they work in the police district station. So this person is a liaison to the community and really serves as a way for residents to get information into the district, but then also to circle back with residents who have made complaints so that they know what type of interventions are taking place. So altogether, our, our staffing model really reflects our mission statement, which is to unite residents, youth, and law enforcement. And in each district, we have staff that really focus on each constituent group to bring them together. Um, so you mentioned community organizer and youth organizer um, as two of the three um, kind of key people maybe on the ground. Mm-hmm. Could you walk us through what is a day in the life of a community organizer or a youth organizer look like? Well, I would say that a day in the life of a community organizer or a youth organizer is is very different from the day before. So each organizer, regardless of their focus on adults or youth, really has to be responsive to the needs of the neighborhoods they're serving. And each of our neighborhoods are different. Um, And so it's a very organic approach and it's very responsive to the needs of individual blocks, which can be very different within its own neighborhood. We recognize the individuality of those challenges. And so on one day, it might be trying to figure out with residents what type of speed interventions can take place on a block. And on another day, it can be planning a block party or it could be canvassing with flyers and information and and introducing residents to information like job fairs or education fairs or um, immunization fairs or um, a number of resources that we, we gain from our partners to ensure that residents have information about what's happening in their community. Our, our focus is really about ensuring residents have an opportunity and the tools to take a leadership role in their communities. And then the, you'll have to remind me of the title, the neighborhood. The neighborhood safety coordinator. Neighborhood safety coordinator. They're inside the police district. Mm -hmm. So what does a day in a life of that role look like? So the neighborhood safety coordinator's role is really twofold. It's serving as a liaison between community residents and law enforcement. And that can be um, working with a resident who is not comfortable speaking to a uniformed officer or it can be um, helping um, identify what are the different components of a problem. So at a specific nuisance property, what are the actually the things that are happening there? Um, But then the coordinator also is responsible for helping facilitate um, regular meetings between multiple city and county departments that work on nuisance property issues. So this is called the Community Prosecution Unit, and it includes um, members of the police department, the district attorney's office, the city attorney's office, neighborhood services, corrections, et cetera, et cetera. There are several partners. Oh, also including Sojourner Family Peace Center, who is a really significant partner of ours. Um, and these, these different departments come together regularly to talk about what are some of the solutions to nuisance property issues 
and we're talking about a specific property, either a residential or a commercial um, property that has multiple issues. And those can be anything from noise violations to code violations to drug dealing to violence. Um, but what is it that's happening at that property? And how can the different departments use their tools and resources to resolve those issues on a holistic approach? So Safe and Sound is out knocking on doors, um, really building the trust with the residents. You mentioned then there's like block parties. So it's Safe and Sound. How, how many events like this do they throw? Is their goal really to create these community events that the police and residents can come and hang out and actually, like you said, see the human behind the, the hoodie or the, uh, the badge? Yeah, so we um, facilitate probably about 1,200, 1,300 events a year. But I, I have to say that cautiously because we don't facilitate the events we help residents facilitate those events and we work with partners to help ensure that um, there's an opportunity for community to come together but this is about residents taking a leadership role and so the block parties are really us just helping provide resources and direction and um, you know a lot of a lot of the red tape that people have to cut through in order to get a permit or have the street blocked off or um, to know who to call at the city for whatever purpose that they need um, that's where our staff can really help and, and really help give residents the confidence and the, um, um, I think it's, it's a very much a, an empowerment model where our staff are not doing it um, so much as they are helping um, teach residents and equip residents and um, cut through some of the red tape that residents face in getting these things done. So I think our listeners and hopefully every human is going to be uh, glad to hear that the goal of the organization is to kind of build up resident leaders. A goal of the organization is to help each other see the humanity in other people. Um, but I think everyone is going to question, all right, that's a great idea, but are you effective at doing it? So how do you think the organization uh, has been in terms of the efficacy of their mission and how are you evaluated? So it's a great question, and it's a really important question because um, so several years ago, Safe and Sound went through a restructuring, um, and we, in order to do that restructuring, we went through a strategic planning process that took us about a year. And through that process, we asked ourselves, what is it that we're good at? What is it that needs to be done in this community? And how do we measure whether or not we're making a difference? And um, being able to say that we do great work every day is important. And the number of events and the number of residents that we serve and the number of youth that are served and the number of nuisance properties that are dealt with. These are all very important outputs, but it doesn't tell us, is that actually changing the neighborhood? So when we restructured, we um, consulted a lot of literature about what actually influences a neighborhood's level of crime and safety. And you use the word efficacy, um, and we use the word efficacy a lot because um, the term collective efficacy really, which mean, which simply means um, the social cohesion, the connectedness of residents in a neighborhood. And um, if a neighborhood has collective efficacy, it'll have a higher rate of safety or a lower rate of crime. So we um, restructured our, our entire organization in order to be able to evaluate it. And so we use measures of collective efficacy to understand is the, are the neighborhoods that we're serving changing. And so twice a year, we take surveys of each of our neighborhoods and we take 2000 surveys a year. 
Um, the surveys are a validated um, academic tool out of the University of Chicago, but it really, it, they ask questions about how you feel about your neighbors and how do you feel that they would intervene if something were going wrong. And through that, we can gauge a score. And the medical college has been a great partner on this. Um, and we hired them a couple years ago to do an evaluation of us since we've restructured. And already in the first two years of operating in this structure, we saw improvements of six in six of the eight neighborhoods as it relates to this collective efficacy score. And to go beyond that, they were able to tell us what interventions made the most difference. And um, common sense will tell you this, but now data will prove it. Um, block clubs and the existence of block clubs, of regular interactions between residents, was the most statistically significant intervention that improved collective efficacy. And the sheer number of meeting and events, meetings and events in a neighborhood was statistically significant in reducing crime. So if people are listening to the podcast and they think that Safe and Sound is a really innovative model, they think it's doing great work in the communities, how can they get involved uh, with the organization? So um, I would start with our website, which is www.safesound.org. We're always looking for volunteers for community events or even here in the office. So the door is wide open and we'd invite you to just contact us and let us know what your interest is. And can people donate as well? And people are always <laughs> welcome to donate. Yes, absolutely. We have um, giving options online and certainly if you call us, we can help you make that happen. As you heard, Katie and Bobby and their organizations are doing wonderful work here in the city of Milwaukee. But a huge influence on police community relations is the larger justice system and those who exist within it, including the district attorney in his office. When a crime is alleged either by a member of the police or the community, it is the role of the prosecuting attorney as well as the district attorney's office to decide how to proceed. We spoke with the DA and assistant DA to get a sense of what their role in the justice system looks like and how it relates to police community relations here in Milwaukee. My name is John Chisholm and I am the district attorney of Milwaukee County. I'm Caitlin Renersma. I am an assistant district attorney in Milwaukee County and I'm currently assigned to the community prosecution unit. I am the community prosecutor for the near west side. Like what does a day in the life of a district attorney look like? Does it change every day? Is it How dynamic is it? Right, so, so the, the shorthand of my job is that I have an obligation to try to keep people safe but I have to keep them safe in a way that respects their civil liberties. And so anytime there's a violation of the social compact, people want and expect some kind of response from the system. So the responsibility of the prosecutor is to um, examine all of those instances where police encounter a problem, they, they bring it to us, we make a determination of whether we think criminal accountability is appropriate, and then we have to follow our ethical responsibilities, make sure that we only charge people if we can prove cases. Um, we have to make sure that the process unfolds in a fair way. Then we work closely with our other partners in the system, which would be public defenders, defense attorneys, judges, obviously police officers, but increasingly it's working closely with some non-traditional partners, mental health care providers, uh, addiction treatment specialists, with our education system, with um, providers like, for example, the Sojourner Family Peace Center, which provides comprehensive care to families exposed to violence. The reality is that there is no standard day in the DA's office. You're, you're 
dealing with problems is really what it comes down to. Our job is to deal with, with problems, and then we have an array of tools to do that with. Caitlin, is there anything you'd like to add in terms of your responsibilities? Um, just the before I was in the community prosecution unit, I was assigned to the general crimes unit for five years. The way I sort of describe the type of cases you'd get there would be OWIs to armed robberies is how, um, I guess I kind of explain those. Every day was in court, every day was sort of case processing, whether it be charging cases, trials, pleas, sentencing from start to finish. As a community prosecutor, we get involved sort of um, before that and also outside of that in ways that we're not able to being a general crimes prosecutor. Um, out in the community unit, it's, I would say, more collaborative and creative at times, um, especially on instances sort of outside of crime when it's a neighbor that calls and is having, you know, problems with the block just kind of seems to have gotten out of control and sort of looking for solutions when something terrible has not yet happened. But when there's the fear of that, um, getting involved in those situations, um, just the best, I think the best part of the unit is the variety that comes and the being able to help people in ways outside of simply processing criminal cases in court. Um. Does every neighborhood or geographic area in Milwaukee then have a community community prosecution unit, or is like near Westside Partners unique? So every, I would say every, all seven of the Milwaukee police districts, that's where we are. They have community prosecution units. Not all of them have a community prosecutor at the time because of the issues with the federal funding. Um, I am currently in the near West Side, which is a portion of District 3. Go back two years ago and we had one in every single police district station because we had the federal funding for it. So we lost the federal funding. We had to downsize by four community prosecutors. Now, we think we're going to get them back, and so we're going to put our people right back out there. But that's the, that's the challenge, right? Because the, the, the beauty of the program is, is like I said, it's relational. You, it takes time to develop trust with people in neighborhoods that have oftentimes not been trustful of the, the system, whether it's police or, or prosecutors, and I know that that's one of your interests is sort of the state of, of uh, community relations between the, the criminal justice system and the people we're serving. And um, the biggest challenge there in, in my experience is history. That's, that's what the challenge is, is, is people have histories. And in the past, uh, this system has not always done the best it could and doing the things I said, which is treating people with respect and dignity and making sure that, that we put the priority on the people that were the biggest risk to the community. So you mentioned history and I think that is an interesting way to look at it. And so I'm curious from Caitlin, from your perspective, working really closely with residents, working with community-based organizations in the near west side, obviously there's been residents there that have their families have lived there for generations. Anecdotally, what is your experience uh, interfacing with residents that have lived there long before community prosecution units were a thing? Have you seen them kind of change their perspective on the police or on law enforcement, and how has that played out? So I've been I've been out in the community for two years, and the last about year has been strictly with the near west side. Um, Obviously, I wasn't around before it existed, yeah. um, but I can tell you regularly, there's citizens who reach out to me, and again, I've only been there two years, they reach out to me on a personal level, asking about an issue on their block, even asking about things that have nothing sort of to do with work. Hey, I have this friend who has this question. Do you know things that have nothing to do with work, but that they've developed a level of trust in me 
just through my being there regularly, being out in their neighborhood, being someone who's been able to sort of lead them in the right direction. The same thing with officers. Um, there's an officer who was assigned to District 3 um, who has recently been um, sort of, we'll call it a promotion because it's what she wanted, but she was in District 3 for nine years. Every person knew her. She'd go to every meeting. She was on the community prosecution unit. Those are the officers who are able to sort of communicate with people who might not otherwise call police about an issue going on in their block. Maybe it's the house next door. It's constantly loud. There's constantly people out, you know, partying in the middle of the night, being loud and rowdy that, you know, they don't want to call the police and have their phone number be listed in a printout of who called the police. Um, I think it allows for sort of that personal connection and trust between residents and the police, but also the police and residents saying, hey, I know this person, if something's going on the block, hey, I might know someone who can tell us something about what's going on there that I know will give us good information. So I, I definitely see it as a very big positive in communities where residents engage with the people involved in these units. What is your role as being an advocate for certain policies? Is that something that the district attorney office does not partake in, or is that part of your mission? I do. Okay. I, I absolutely do. And again, it's um, it's really important in my view that prosecutors view themselves as being part of the problem-solving network within a community. And that oftentimes means listening to experts from the academic world, looking at the actual data and seeing what doesn't, what does not work. It's so easy for us to kind of retreat within the walls of the courthouse and just take what comes. And it gives you kind of a jaded perspective on the world because you're only seeing the bad things that happen then. You're not seeing the 90% of the good people that are even in some of the most challenged neighborhoods. One way I could answer the question is we actually brought a guy named Patrick Sharkey into the Marquette Law School. His major premise is despite all the historical poverty and concentrated disadvantage, violent crime's actually been going down in major cities. But his takeaway on it was that um, yeah, police and prosecutors are never going to be able to prevent all these things from happening. To go back to the original premise, and, and that is, they're for the most part they're just always responding to problems, right? The, but the 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 way you do it is to actually invest in neighborhoods again, and, and he means literally invest. In, in other words, one of the one of our most useful allies is is a strong neighborhood-based organization, and sometimes it's just a strong person in that neighborhood. That is willing to to be that stabilizer, to be that person that will invest all of their time, and we ought to be paying them for it. You have a philosophical perspective <laughs> on justice as well, but in particular, like prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, like I said, I don't think a lot of people see prosecution as as an, as important as like a police officer in ensuring a safe community. But certainly, the role of prosecution is important, right? So. I mean, important, I think, in lots of ways. Talking about the justice, it's the way I've always talked about it. So in general crimes, you spend a week out of every five weeks sitting in an office and police officer after police officer brings you a case of someone they've arrested or someone they want you to issue charges about. You review it and what John was saying about, can I prove this beyond a reasonable doubt? But there's also the question of, should I? There's, you get a variety of cases, anything from a, I was yelling at my mom in the street and I'm 17 years old to I robbed someone at gunpoint in front of their child. It's a whole range of circumstances and every single case is different. And part of the evaluation, I think, in what prosecutors bring, especially to the justice system, is that 
consideration. Okay, yes, this maybe 17-year-old did yell at their mother in the street, and is that a disorderly conduct because someone down the street perhaps heard it, but it's also taking into consideration everything, the history, the has this person been in trouble before, um, how is, if I charge this person with a crime, what, how is that going to help the people around them, and how is it going to either help or hurt that person? It's, it's, it's the I can charge someone, should I charge someone? That's always been a big consideration for me. And we do get to be the voice for the victim, right? Um, the victims are not our clients. The state of Wisconsin is our client. But but one of the most important things we do is really focus on the dignity of that victim as well. That's why a big part of our office is, is dedicated to things like witness protection and witness advocacy. I think it's actually taken us into a, a different direction, and that is that that I think most prosecutors come to understand that most crime is temporal. It's, it's just one moment in time. It, it, somebody isn't as bad as they were the moment that they were arrested for that crime. So going back to this idea of justice, um, I think a concept that I think of and a lot of people think of when they think of justice is that people in power, people with authority, are not going to be above the law. And they will also be held to a standard, sometimes even a higher standard than an average citizen. So what's the role of the district attorney's office in prosecuting those, maybe people that are elected officials, people, the, the police themselves, and does that create tension if you're having to work alongside the police, but you're also in charge of making sure the police are held accountable too? Absolutely. Age-old question, who guards the guardians, right? And so um, the answer to that in our criminal justice system is the prosecutor. So you're, there, there's built into the, the unique obligations and tensions of an elected prosecutor, right? You think about that. You, we just had a visiting delegation from Mexico, and, and I've had delegations from around the world that come in to look at different parts of our system. And inevitably, the first thing they ask is, how can you be an elected prosecutor, right? Because then aren't you, aren't you going to cater to the, you know, whatever the most popular thing is as opposed to doing what's right in each individual case. And um, the, the answer to that is that the American prosecutor is, is given absolutely unique discretionary authority that, that you do not see in other systems. Um, but we also have unique constraints on us as well. Um, we are obligated to follow the rules of professional responsibility that they carve out specifically for prosecutors because they recognize how much power we do have. And then it's our obligation to use that power wisely. And part of using that power wisely is, is to hold public officials, whether they're police officers or elected officials or big bank corporations or, or anybody, you know, hold the powerful accountable, um, even though it's sometimes really uncomfortable and unpleasant to do that. So, so you see that unfold. That's never an easy thing to do, um, particularly when it involves things like an officer-involved shooting or, or something like that. Um, that's, that's the one thing that I've just come over time to understand degrades public trust in, in the criminal justice system. Caitlin can do two years of phenomenal work um, just establishing trust with the neighborhoods that she serves. And a lot of that can get washed away in a second by a bad decision to use force or to treat somebody disrespectfully or, you know, all of that is just part of it. And so there's no question that that's, that's just built into um, our responsibility on every case we look at is that we have to hold ourselves accountable and we have to hold 
um, other people that are given that discretionary power accountable as well. Because this is Bridge the City, we want to leave you with a few action steps. We asked our guests what they would recommend all residents in Milwaukee do, starting with Safe and Sound's Executive Director, Katie Sanders. So uh, I would say one, um, if you don't already, get to know your neighbors. Uh, it's really important that we as community members take a leadership role in understanding who we are and who we're in a small space with. Um, but not just on your block. And I would encourage people um, in the city and from outside of the city to explore Milwaukee and try some neighborhoods that you would not necessarily think you would find yourself in. So, um, you know, there's, there's a real, because of the geography of the city and the divide of the highways, um, a real reticence to go into central city Milwaukee. And it's unfortunate because our um, city is amazing and uh, I would recommend, you know, taking different paths to work, um, taking different, just drive through the city, get out, introduce yourself to people. Don't be afraid. Um, I, you know, somebody asked me the other day if I was more fearful of the city since working here or less fearful. And I was like, well, I've never been fearful because this is my city and I love it. But I would say even less fearful because I can see how amazing people are across the city and even in neighborhoods that are really struggling with generations of disinvestment. And sometimes that disinvestment and the um, physical um, the physical appeal of the neighborhood, which is all people give it, um, is, is really misleading. And so I would just say explore the city and give it another look. Get involved. You know how few people actually come down to watch the criminal justice system? We have we have complete trials and sentencing for really serious offenses where there's nobody in the courtroom but the prosecutors and the witnesses and, and uh, the judge. Um, I'd say come on down. Um, actually see what takes place uh, on a regular basis. And then the second thing is, is my pitch is really to the next generation that's going to be responsible for all this, and that is is uh, get engaged in, in this process in some form, just like you guys are doing right now. Just get engaged in it, and um, that can be done in a whole variety of ways. Uh, we do internships in the office all the time. We, we um, I, I, I basically just, part of my responsibility is to recruit young people to consider public service. It's increasingly becoming an unattractive option for, for a lot of people. And, for, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, it's not an irrational decision by a lot of, of young people. But we can't make this thing work unless we get people that are willing to become public defenders, are willing to, to do become public allies, are willing to engage in nonprofit work for even a portion of their life, come in and and, and uh, work for even a even a little portion of your life, and then you go on into your whatever your your love and life is. You just bring that experience with you, so that when you see the the things that are unfolding, you're just better informed about it. You just have you know it's a, you don't make those snap judgments that that are always binary, right? Is that you know the DA is soft on crime, you know he sucks, or the DA puts too many people in jail or prison, he sucks. That's 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 what you always have is just these binary things. Whereas 
the people that have spent some time in the system know that it's, it's complicated. It's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. Um, I would say on a more specific level, um, be if you're, you know, live in a neighborhood and you're concerned about it, or you just aren't involved and you want to be involved and be involved with other community-based organizations, the police department, the DA's office, every police district in the city of Milwaukee has a community prosecution unit. If you don't know the number for the district, go to the front desk, ask. There's specific officers called community liaison officers that are supposed to be sort of the point of contact between citizens and sort of the rest of the unit. Um, that's who you'd eventually end up talking to if you develop some trust and want to give them information. Oh, I'd see all over the news this guy's wanted for homicide. I saw him in my neighborhood yesterday and you don't want to give your name. That's a person you could give that information to. Information about a loud house, block parties, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'll tell you the phone number if I can for the one at my yeah. district and it's all of District 3. Um, it's 935-7972 and the community liaison officer is Coriana Cavazos. She's been um, at that district for a number of years um, but she also shares an office with I believe there's three or four other officers in our unit at this point um, go to crime and safety meetings every I think every um, district captain has a monthly meeting where they talk about sort of what's been going on in their districts ask for resident input ask you know about concerns going on in your neighborhood just a fine way to be involved um, it will help sort of you develop trust for the police um, and get to see sort of with more wide open eyes what they are doing and sort of what not just reactive, but proactive things they're doing and they're willing to do and help you do in your neighborhood. We all play a role in making a difference. We all, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, how they want their community to be or why my community is not like this community. The one thing I know about any community that's functioning really well is that they have community residents that's involved and engaged. And they also have law enforcement working with them and not against them, you know. So I would just encourage anyone you know, that's not currently getting involved, do something. There's always something that you can get involved on a level which you feel comfortable with, but it also helps to make a difference. Mm. You know, I don't think we have the luxury to continue to sit back and wait on somebody else or anyone else to come in and do it. We all have to do a little bit more, a little bit more. DA Chisholm mentioned this at the end, and we heard it echoed by a number of guests and community voices, but the elephant in the room here is the shadow of ongoing police brutality in America, and the protections that offending officers receive by the system. As DA Chisholm mentioned, one instance of police brutality, not even one that takes place in Milwaukee, can undermine years of hard work by law-abiding officers, local nonprofits, neighborhood associations, etc. Because it is currently so hard to move forward on this issue, but so easy to go backward, I think that to make real progress on police-community relations, the most effective change to the status quo is that officers who use excessive force must be seen by everyone as subject to procedural justice and not receive special treatment by the legal system. Only then can it be credibly claimed that the problem truly does lie in a few bad apples and not the entire policing and justice system itself. Although our guests didn't spend a ton of time talking about the historical legacy of policing, I think it's important to think about social cohesion in that context. Knowing the historical trauma placed on communities of color through police brutality and systemic racism means that social cohesion, in my view, requires more from the state 
but requires more from the police. It may be easy to assume equal responsibility on the public and the police, but are police officers and actors in the criminal justice system not inherently in a privileged position? Is it not appropriate for us to expect more of them than normal citizens? We provide them with the power to take life. We provide them with legitimacy, with a uniform and a badge. I think Santana's request for empathy is appropriate. That said, our guest talked a lot about how actors beyond the police, from nonprofit employees to landlords to the DA's office, can make a positive difference in the safety of a community. So I want to push our listeners to think about what role they are playing to keep Milwaukee safe and the police accountable so that one day we can learn to expect and not request empathy of our police. this episode, I really want to focus on action steps, even more so than a normal Bridge to City episode. We heard from residents, community liaisons, nonprofit leaders, and law enforcement about the utility of a community prosecution unit. The DA's office said they fully believe that this is the most effective, moral, and equitable way to increase social cohesion and make neighborhoods safer. But they pointed out that all this work is relying on outside funding and definitions. I will be, and I challenge all of you to write to your state representatives and ask them about community prosecution units and ask them to change the definition and the role of the DA's office so money from the state can fund community prosecution units. And write to your representatives in the U.S. Congress and encourage them to allocate more funding to grants that cover community prosecution units. As District Attorney Chisholm mentions, they lost a few community prosecutors because of lack of funds. And this is a shame because we know how effective these units can be. So let's take action and stabilize the funding sources for community prosecution units. Thank you so much for staying with us through all three episodes of our series on police community relations in Milwaukee. We hope you come away more knowledgeable about the recent history of policing in Milwaukee and more familiar with the many players that are involved in maintaining a functioning relationship between the police and the community. More importantly, we hope you follow through on some of the action steps provided in all three of our episodes by our guests. Of course, here at Bridges City, we're an action-oriented podcast, and we believe sound bites are not solutions, so please heed those action steps. If you've listened to this episode and the previous episodes, and you found you have a real passion for this topic, we're happy to announce that we're partnering with Milwaukee to do a political open mic on criminal justice here in Milwaukee. The event is free. It's going to be on Thursday, March 21st at 6 p.m., and it's going to be at Mobcraft Brewing. So even if you don't like criminal justice, if you like beer, Mm -hmm. you're welcome there, too. Please use these episodes as a springboard into finding out what your own ideas are on the topic of criminal justice. The whole concept of the political open mic is that you'll be encouraged to come up on stage and actually share your own idea. And we'll have some pretty powerful people in the room who are there to listen to you. That's right. These people include Rebecca Dallet, Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice and former guest on the pod. Office of Violence Prevention Director Reggie Moore. Flames. District Attorney John Chisholm. Oh my God. There's more? There's more. Safe and Sound's Katie Sanders. Wow. Another former guest, State Rep Evan Goyke. And the mayor himself, Tom Barrett. Drop the mic. That's that's an incredible lineup right there. That's an incredible lineup. But of course, we will be inviting audience members again to share their ideas with these community leaders about what a fair criminal justice system looks like you will not want to miss this event so take out your phone mark your calendars go to milwaukee's website and register and join us for this wonderful opportunity to learn more about the community and what people are doing to make positive change within 
criminal justice here in Milwaukee. And like Ben said, mark your calendar. Honestly, take the whole day off. Take the day off from work. On us. Prepare. Get ready for this event. <laughs> Tell your friends to come. It's going to be a blast. We want to extend thank you to Bobby McQuay from the Near West Side Partners, Katie Sanders from Safe and Sound, DA John Chisholm, and Assistant DA Caitlin Ringersma for joining us on this episode, and thank you to all the previous guests on our previous episodes as well. And of course, thank you for listening. And if you like Bridge the City and want to help other Milwaukeeans tune in, please rate and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and subscriptions really do help other Milwaukeeans find the podcast, and in doing so, get involved in making Milwaukee a more civically engaged city. Stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks. Follow us on social media for new episode updates and upcoming civic engagement opportunities in Milwaukee. And as always, let us know how you have helped bridge the city. city.